You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome to Faith and Other Oddities, the show where Emily and I talk about the Bible, record it, release it into the wild via the internet, and uh, <laughs> hopefully we learn something along the way, and hopefully the you know you get something out of it, too, out there. So, Is there anything wilder than the internet? That's a good um, question. <laughs> uh, there's not much, really, that's left. <laughs> I mean, there's there's certain unexplored areas of the of the world. I'm sure there's something down in the, you know, midnight zone. <laughs> It's probably pretty wild. Bottoms but... of the ocean where no sun shall be seen. Yes. Yeah. The internet's kind of basically the wild, wild west of things <laughs> right now. It's so. But that being said, um, I guess let's make it weirder. Um, so last time we were in Samuel 18, is that right? Second Samuel 18? We were, but we were jumping over to Psalm 20. Oh, shoot. I just listened to Second Samuel 18 like three or four times. I forgot we were moving to Psalm 20, so eh. I'm going to be learning on the fly. So, uh. <laughs> This is what happens when we sleep between episodes. So, yeah, yeah, but no, it's okay, because I think, I think it's good. And, you know, and this is one of the really cool things. A lot of times, Psalms are pretty self-explanatory. What you're really bringing in is some context. It, and, sure. You know, that, that's really what you're doing, is bringing in context. And speaking of context, Almost every commentator believes that this particular psalm was written for a king going into battle. That's okay. really not disputed. And the question is, which king, which battle? And a lot of the traditions hold that this is David, and he is speaking to the troops, specifically at that moment when they're going out to meet Absalom's army. Now, Ibn uh, Ezra says that David wrote this uh, to one of his officers, he may have even written it to himself, or possibly he's writing it prophetically to a future Messiah, to the future Messiah, which that is kind of interesting. We're going to talk about why. Uh, Rashi gets more specific. Rashi says, this is to Joab. This is 100% David speaking to Joab. He's talking to his general who cannot be successful except for the merit of David. The fact that he served such a great king is the reason why Joab is successful himself. So, you know, some various traditions. Um, I, I like to look at them all because it really tells you how the, these commentators, both ancient uh, from the Second Temple and then also uh, from even later uh, Rashi, for instance, from the Middle Ages. So, you know, we see how they approach David's story, but they also teach us how they approach Psalms. And then they also teach us how they're looking at the concept of that coming Messiah. You know, and for Jewish commentators, they, you know, obviously they don't think it was Jesus. So they even, as we move forward past the birth of Jesus, they're still trying to, to understand what the world's going to be like and, and how that arrival or advent of the Messiah is going to play out. And I think it's kind of interesting to, to see those perspectives because, you know, we as, a, as Christians, we kind of... It's like, yeah, he, he showed up, you know, in a manger, and there was a star, and there was wise men, and we, we kind of, we, we've got it kind of nailed down, but I think we need to stop and think about what it was like for people who, who were before Jesus, and even those who, who missed Jesus. How did they understand this concept of a Messiah who was going to come and set the world to rights? And how do you grapple with the idea that there's supposed to be the Savior who's coming to to fix all these things and, you know, political problems included. And he hasn't shown up yet. And, you know, the Jewish people and their history from, you know, going back to Egypt forward has been a history of oppression and a history of persecution. And, you know, there's so many points in the history of that we talk about in our history books, like the Holocaust, where the persecution was so great, yet they still, so many of the, the Jewish people have managed to hang on to hope for Messiah. That's crazy to me. That, because, I mean, let's face it, a lot of Christians think persecution is not having a good parking space. 
So, you know, mm-hmm. when you put that in context and, and see the level of their faith, this is one of the reasons why I have great admiration for a lot of people of the Jewish faith is that they've managed yeah. to hang on. So, yeah. you mean, you mean uh, persecution is not getting your, uh, your videos demonetized? That's not persecution? <laughs> <laughs> that is definitely not persecution, uh, but that's an inconvenience. And I think we need to recognize when things are inconvenient versus persecution uh, and maybe stop whining about the inconveniences or recognize that when we do whine because we're humans, that what we're whining about and just own it and stop mm-hmm. trying to make it bigger than it is to justify our whining. I mean, I ran out of coffee. I'm going to whine. That's not persecution. That's an inconvenience. That's my own stupidity. Uh, I don't let that happen very often, but anyway, so, um, not to get on that rat rant, uh, the superscription. I was going to see how far you would go with uh-huh. it before I said anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's been a week and a half, so we're just going to keep <laughs> rolling. Uh, the superscription to the choir master, a Psalm of David. This is how the ESV translates it. And of course, that's the version that we're going with as our primary text. Art Scroll translates it for the conductor a psalm by David. So we have two very different ways, um, two valid ways of uh, of interpreting this. It's very subtle if you aren't really paying attention to the wording. And it's the ambiguity of the Hebrew language. Because on one hand, it's a psalm written by David to a choir master. On the other hand, it can be a psalm from the choir master written for David. So there's some debate there. And that's just, you know, the way language works. Sometimes it's not as crystal clear as we might like. But the, the point is, is that uh, tradition does connect this back to the time of David. So, first one, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. So much with this verse. Okay, so in the first four verses, all of the verbs are what we call jessive. And I'm not going to get too far into grammar, but Jessive just simply means it's expressing a desire, a wish, a hope. And in the first four verses, we're going to encounter these wishes that may God answer, may God protect, may God send help, may he support, may he remember. So these are all wishes of something that they hope God is going to do on their behalf, or that the writer of the psalm hopes God is going to do on the behalf of another. So the first wish, hope, or desire, however you want to phrase it, is God will answer you in the day of trouble. Now, Rolf Jacobson uh, sees this day of trouble as any crisis that's too great for the individual. This is something that the individual cannot face on their own. It's too great for the community even to, to help with. Uh, they can help, but they aren't going to overcome it. God's help and protection is what's needed to survive this particular crisis. Now, the Midrash says that the day of trouble or distress, as it's uh, translated in the Midrash, is a day that even the angels in heaven will sense fear. And they believe that this is the awful day, um, the, the terrible day, before the arrival of the Messiah. And it's described in Jeremiah 37, uh, chapter 30, verse 7. So notice the, the similar uh, words here. Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it, is the time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. So we have this very close kind of mirroring of, of themes. We've got this mention of Jacob. We've got this mention of salvation. Uh, and it's this, this day when things are so just horrendous that only God can fix it. Only God's physical arrival in the form of a Messiah can, can it actually be addressed. So it's on the, based on these similarities between these two verses, um, Psalms 20, verse 1, and Jeremiah 30, verse 7, that some commentators believe that this psalm is prophetic, that it's speaking about the future Messiah and not about a historical event. And, you know, this is one of the really cool things about uh, prophecy in general. Prophecy often can cover a multitude of times. It has Mm -hmm. many applications. Matter of fact, there's another verse, I should have written it down, Another verse in, in uh, Jeremiah that the, the rabbis interpreted to mean this, it says, one hammer shatters many rocks. So, and the idea being that the one 
verse can apply to many situations. And so it's not necessarily completely fulfilled or completely um, revealed in one specific moment, but it actually has applications across time and across uh, situations. And so this is, um, this psalm very well may be applied to both a historical and a prophetic. I don't think it has to be an either or. I think it can very much be a both and situation. And, mm. in, you know, so, so often I think that's one of the things we make the mistake of when we read the Bible is we forget that this is a book that was inspired by infinite God. And so it doesn't have to be either or. It can encompass more. And it's always deeper than what we think it is. And we need to, to give it room to take up all the space that it demands. And I think when we try to narrow down the meaning and the application to one specific thing and we get that too narrow, we're actually denying the word to be all that it can be. Not that it's in the army. Sorry, bad joke. Um, but we have to, you know, that's the thing. We, we want to allow the space, not that God needs our permission, but allow it within ourselves so that we can experience as fully as we can. So Yeah, yeah. Allow ourselves to take a step back from, you know, preconceived notions or systematics and things of that nature where we go, well, if it's not that, then it's this. And if it's not this, then it's that. And just breaking it into these categories that basically divide the church into a whole bunch of us versus them uh, arguments yeah. where uh, there's constant moving goalposts and things of that nature. And, you know, that that's, and we have to, we views, have to win the argument. Just, yeah. You know, yeah, there's just, there's, there's a lack of imagination and yeah, the, the, yeah, that, that's the, what I saw a thing the other day. I know it's kind of in, in all reality is kind of just a, uh, you know, quippy little, saying is it was you know we we need to stop arguing about who's right and start arguing about what's right Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. because that's a lot of where the church is right now and we've got to get over ourselves i mean it's just you know and, and that's the thing i think if we were willing to to actually just look for truth and and look for what the bible is actually saying and trying to understand god's word the best we can a lot of these arguments would go away, but mm-hmm. so often, and, and I'm sure I'm guilty of it. I, I, I'm a human being. I'm not immune. So often we get caught up in advancing our agenda, making sure that people validate what we think is right by either that, that so-called persecution again, or by echoing back what we want to hear. And right. you know, if, if you need someone else to confirm that what you believe is right, and you need them to to do that either through opposition or through af- affirmation, and both are ways of confirming to people that they're right. Do you really believe it? I, I, I that that's what I you know that's my question. Do you really believe it? And so uh, maybe that's a question people should should ponder. So anyhow. Um, not to step on too many toes, we'll get back to the reference to Jacob. Okay, so this is really interesting because I had not thought about this before. Um, the reason why Jacob is mentioned is out of all the patriarchs, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob is the one who faced the most distress and persecution. He's the one who had the absolute most troubled times in his life. I mean, you, the whole Rachel and Leah saga. Laban, you know, taking advantage of him, the battle with Esau, trying to reconcile the family relationship, you know, all the wars that were fought as he was moving into Canaan, his sons, oh my goodness, all the stuff that his sons did. And so he, he went through all of these terrible times, and yet he still clung to the faith. He did not desert God. He didn't say, oh, God's abandoned me. He, he continued to believe in the promise that had been given to him and his family. The other interesting point about Jacob, he's the only one of the patriarch whose all of his sons continued within the covenant community. They become the become the heads of the um, twelve tribes of Israel, where mm-hmm. Abraham, you know, Isaac and Ishmael. We know Isaac was the son of the covenant, and Ishmael was not. Then we have Jacob and Esau. Jacob carries on the covenant; Esau does not. 
only Jacob is, has sons who remain part of the covenant community, and there's 12 of them. Not one of them's excluded. So um, Jacob kind of holds a unique position as even one of the patriarchs and kind of distinct from the other two. Now, notice that the psalmist asks that the protection come from the name of God, name of the Lord, sorry, the name of the Lord. So I want you to hang on to that little tidbit as we move forward, because we're going to come back to that. But when we get into verse two, verse two, may he send, your, send you help from the sanctuary and give, your, give you support from Zion. So references to the sanctuary, immediately we tend to think of temple, particularly when paired with the word Zion. Now, if this is referring to the temple, obviously this excludes David as the author because now you know, there's no temple. He couldn't have been writing about sure. the temple before it was being built. But it also, also can just refer to the place where the Ark of the Covenant is where it's being housed. So, you know, the sanctuary could have been at Shiloh. It, it could have been the, the tent, the tabernacle set up on the road anywhere along the Exodus journeys. It doesn't have to be the temple. And we need to remember that the, um, the Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. It is in Zion when this is happening in David's life. So from that aspect, you know, you can either argue for or against, depending on where you're going to put the emphasis. But Let's go back and grab a little bit of information from verse 1. And the first thing we need to know is that the Israelites made a very subtle but very significant distinction between God and the name of God. So God did not literally live in a temple. However, the name of God did reside in the temple, and God's glory and holy presence was manifest within the temple. And this is where we get into language that's very similar to that tricky kind of language that most Christians have a problem with when we're trying to talk about this concept of the Trinity. Because mm -hmm. we have the distinction between God and the name. So the name is God, and God is the name, but the name and God are not identical. They're two distinct beings or manifestations, however you want to express it. So we, we see this beginning for this argument for something that a lot of Christians have probably run across the critique, oh, well, the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible. Absolutely, the word is never found, okay? Let, let's, just, let's just be honest about that. But we find the concept there, and what we did, what theologians over the ages did, was they pulled these concepts and these themes, and they pulled them together, and they said, here's a name for the concept so that we don't have to go into all the wordy details in order to describe what we're talking about. So it's, we aren't betraying the text by naming a concept so we can discuss it. We're, we're actually just making it more efficient to discuss this. But this is, this is the basis, one of the places where we see um, this idea of God being multifaceted, if you will, having these distinct parts and yet still being unified. And, you know, if you want to, the internal, uh, what do they call it, the, the internal, uh, eternal interdwelling of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, the, the fancy word, the perichoresis. Um, you know, you, you get into these very abstract thoughts that are really hard to describe, and it is the mystery of God. And a lot of Christians, I know I've talked to people who said, you know, I almost lost my faith because I couldn't understand it, or uh, I did lose my faith because it didn't make sense to me. I don't think this is a concept we have to have lined out. I, I don't think it's something that we have to understand. I think it's just something that we, we need to, to be aware of, and I think it is important that we try to understand to the best of our ability, but I don't think our salvation or our appreciation of God needs to be dependent on us figuring out this idea that we call the Trinity, um, because who can really understand it? You know, it, it's, it's an eternal matter. It, it's a matter that transcends human, humanity's experience as, as individuals or even as a community. It's, it's bigger than us. 
And so sometimes we just have to accept on faith that even though we don't know the mechanics, which is what we really are trying to figure out a lot of times is the mechanics, even though we don't know that, we can still accept it as being true. And I know we can do well, that. And, Go ahead. Yeah, and, and the problem with us trying to figure out the mechanics is our, our, our minds are kind of bound to our understanding of the physical universe in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so for us, things have to make sense. There has to be, we're, we live in the finite. We, mm-hmm. we live with an understanding of the world that is the one we're designed to live in. Mm-hmm. And so beyond that, things are not going to make a lot of sense. And even some things in our world don't make a lot of sense, mm-hmm. but they're also, because we're not God, we, we are not going to be able to figure out exactly how he works everything. Well, and you know, and I think it's funny because there's this little bit of cultural conditioning that matters of faith should make sense. It, and it's, this is really crazy. Okay, when you really break it down and, and try to understand it, I had a conversation with a young man, this is a few months ago. And he's like, I don't know if I can believe because it doesn't make sense to me. And uh, he goes, I just don't think faith is something I'm capable of. And, you know, I got to thinking about that. And as the discussion progressed, I said, I know that's not true. And and here's how I know it's not true. And, And we began to talk. I said, can you explain to me how electricity works? Like, you know, we live near a... uh, a dam that produces electricity, like how it gets from that dam all the way to your house and into that light bulb to light up a room. And he's like, well, no, obviously I, I, I can't. And I said, okay. I said, but you still have faith that when you flip that switch, the light's going to come on. So we operate maybe not with the same kind of faith, but we still have this faith in things that we don't understand in the physical world. We just assume that there are people you know, engineers and technicians and, you know, linemen and electricians and whatever who, who understand how these things work and they do their job. And so now we can benefit from what they've done. Why is faith different? Why, why is that something that we have to apply a different standard to? So when we're talking about religion and theology and things like that, why can't we have that same faith that, hey, God actually knows what he's doing. He's done his job. Now we can, we can experience and live in the reality that he's created for us. It, just, just a thought. I mean, I, it's probably, you know, I know there's an analogy. As an analogy, it probably breaks down somewhere, but all analogies do, and I'm okay with that. So, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, if your analogy falls short, it's because the analogy is less complex than the thing you're trying to explain or trying to relate to people. Right. I mean, that's what an analogy <laughs> is for. It's to get them a, a, a way to to maybe propel their mind into a higher way of thinking anyway. Yeah, it's, that's... it's that little, it's a building block, you know, uh, that's all it is. It, it's a stepping stone. It's a building block. It's not supposed to be the, the entire structure. So another analogy for you. Uh, anyway. and, any, and anyone who thinks that a person using analogies thinks that uh, it is not a good communicator. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So... Well, moving on, because we can, you know, this is a conversation you and I have had several times, and we probably need to like do a Patreon special talking about some of this stuff. But anyway, yeah, um, we'll get back to the text now. But Jacobson points out that uh, the temple is, is not God's home. It is the home for the name. And because the name of God lives in the temple, this now becomes our contact point. It becomes, or Israel's contact point, between heaven and earth. It's where they can go and seek God. They can appeal for help. And then the help from God emanates out from the temple. Now, understanding this actually brings a whole new dimension to uh, John 1.14. And John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as only the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that word there... Um, for dwelt among us, it, when you look at it in the, in the Hebrew, it actually means tabernacled with us, that Jesus tabernacled, and which is, you know, that's where the first home of the Ark of the Covenant um, resided. So uh, Jesus, you know, as Christians, he's now our contact point, you know, to steal Jacobson's words. 
he's, he's that place that heaven and earth connects for us and that we appeal to him for help and we, we get to receive from him and it emanates from within, you know, the God who dwells within us, the Lord who, who has, um, given us the Holy Spirit and Christ has saved us. Now that help that we receive can emanate outward from us because why we're the new temple. So, um, you know, it, it, it's really, you can go some really deep places when you think about what this means um, when you start comparing the Christian relationship to Christ to that tabernacle or to that temple experience and recognizing that we are the, the new home for our Lord on this earth. So I, I, I love thinking about that and what the implications are and, and how that should um, demonstrate how we should live our lives. So. Anyway, verse three, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Now, if we look back to 1 Samuel 7, 8 through 9, you know, we've seen that um, sacrifices and prayers before engaging in battles, that, that's normal. Uh, in that particular passage in 1 Samuel, Israel was in battle with the Philistines. They had gone to Samuel and they said, hey, we need you to cry out to God on our, be- on our behalf. And at that battle, God uh, thundered. He sent the Philistines into com- uh, confusion. And we've learned that as long as Samuel is judge, that the Philistines never attack Israel. And it's not until after Saul becomes king that we start having problems with this, the Philistines again. Now, the important point of that story was Samuel made sacrifices. He offered burnt offerings, and he was answered. And we need to recognize that these kinds of offerings, they're not payoffs, okay? This isn't you give your 10% and God's going to bless you 100%. This isn't if you give this much to God, he's obligated to give this much back. That, that's not what we're talking about, okay? That kind of thinking is witchcraft. That's, we don't engage in that as, as believers. What this is, this is Samuel actively demonstrating his loyalty. He's actively showing his devotion to God. And he's saying, because I love you, I'm giving you this. The, the deeds on the outside might look the same, but the motivation is different. And so one of the things I taught my girls was if you can trust somebody's motivation, you can live with just about anything. You know, you can forgive offenses because you know they weren't done maliciously. So you've got to look at the motivation of why someone's doing what they're doing. And we need to hang on to the idea that when we do give, when we do serve God, when we make our lives a living sacrifice, that it's not a payoff for God. It is a demonstration of loyalty and devotion. So uh, I think too often we, we forget that. We think that, oh, well, if I'm nice to this person, then God has to be nice to me. No, he doesn't, okay? He, he, he's sovereign. He doesn't. He doesn't have to do anything. Uh, you do it because it's the right thing to do, and it's how you demonstrate love. So verse 4, may he grant your heart's desires and fulfill your plans. Verse 5, May we shout for joy over our victories, over your, sorry, shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So these verses express anticipation and a hope that God's going to hear and answer the prayers. Now, the verbs change in these verses. They're singular, they're plural, they're singular again, they're plural again. And so we've got this, this shift back and forth. Now, Ibn Ezra says that this indicates a triumphant, the triumphant cries of an army celebrating the victory of their leader. And in this case, he believes it was David. And I think we're all familiar with times in the Bible when um, there's talks about human plans versus God's plans. And how many times have we been told that basically human plans and God's plans are, are in opposition? And, and when we have verses to back that up, I mean, Isaiah 30, um, chapter 30, verse 1, 29, 15, 36, 5. And, and there is this idea that human plans are often in opposition to God's plans. But here in the psalm, it's, it, it's actually the opposite, that the psalmist is praying that his plans be fulfilled or that the plans of this person he's writing for that be fulfilled. And they, they, they expect a favorable answer from God. Uh, about their, their plans. They, they aren't expecting God to say, nope, you, you messed it up. You, you aren't smart enough to figure this out. Um, they really do think that God is going to 
to say, yeah, this is, this is what needs to happen. And it's not presented as presumption or arrogance. It, it is really presented as a person who has proclaimed allegiance to God, who is trying to figure out the best way to serve him, and is trying to figure out the best way to go forward. And what they're doing is consulting with God and saying, hey, I think this is what we're supposed to do. Is this the right thing? And God, they're expecting God to actually guide them. You know, this is, this is a relationship imbalance is what it is. Because what they're doing is they're acknowledging their dependence on God, but they're still taking responsibility to act as an individual and to function as an adult human being. You know, they aren't waiting for the burning bush. They aren't waiting for that fleece uh, to be soaked or dry, however, you know, the, the circumstances. They are actually... Depending on the evening. Yeah, depending on the evening. They are, um, they are saying, you know, as a human being, I have an obligation in this relationship to do my best. And part of doing my best is, you know, I am going to make plans, and then I'm going to talk to you about them and see if this is the right thing to do. And I think there's a, there's a tendency sometimes to go, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to wait until God guides me. Well, you know, sometimes God guides you very simply in get a job, cook dinner, pick up the crap in your living room floor. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't need to send you a sign to do these things. This is, should be things that as a human being, you do. And if you're a king over a kingdom that's being attacked, then one of those right things to do is to figure out how to defend the kingdom. It's not some mystical thing. It really can be that simple. Mm But um, verse 6, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. How's it going over there? Hello? Oh, I get... Hold on, you cut out for just a second. Are you there? Yeah. Okay, I'm here. Okay, you're back. Okay. I, I thought you had gotten lost in your notes for a little bit longer than typical, so, um, but we're we're back on track now. Sorry, everyone. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, so we're 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 here. So yeah, I was going into verse six, and uh, it says, "Now I know that the Lord uh, saves His anointed. He will answer him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand." Now, um, Ralph Jacobson actually. Um, calls this the turning point in the psalm. Uh, the psalmist says, now I know, or atayatati. Um, it, it, it means, it literally means now I know. I mean, it, it's this idea of knowledge that comes from an experience. It's not something you learn from a book. It's not something that somebody told you. It's because you have had an intimate experience that has provided you with this knowledge. And it usually involves a revelation that's completely new. Um, it, it's something that you just had no, no understanding of before you went through it. And we see this. This is the same words that we find in Genesis twenty two twelve. This is when um, Abraham offers up Isaac, and it's God who says, Ata yadati, because um, he says, now I know that you fear, that you fear me. Mm-hmm. He's talking to Abraham which is kind of, that's always just uh, been one of those verses that just messes with my mind and gets me all excited because this is God who knows everything saying, now I know. And he's saying, now I've experienced this. And so it wasn't that he didn't know, but he had not experienced it because he hadn't been with anyone who had lived it, who had enacted it until he'd gone through it with Abraham, which is a really crazy thought. Um, it really talks about the intimacy and the presence of God in the human experience. But it's also found in Exodus 18.11. Jethro says, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods because he'd witnessed the Exodus out of Egypt. Uh, we're, we're not told what the psalmist has experienced. We, we have no idea what happened between verse 5 and verse 6. Uh, verse 4 and 5, those are anticipation. Verse 6 is uh, yes moment. You know, it's the, the, we got it. We understand it moment. And we're told that, that what the knowledge is, which is the important part and the knowledge that he's gained out of whatever happened is that God saves his anointed, the Messiah, and God answers from his holy heaven with his saving right hand. If you're in the middle of a battle, these are important things to have. 
Now, the anointed, um, this can refer to David, obviously. He's the anointed king. But he could also uh, be talking about any other king in Israel because all the kings were anointed. And obviously, if we're looking forward, we can be talking about Jesus, who is the Messiah or the anointed. And so it just depends on where you think this psalm was written. It works in all of those contexts. And the answer comes from the holy heavens, which is fitting because, as we just talked about, the temple is where heaven and earth meet, and as they, this is the place where they meet, then any divine answer would come from the holy heaven. Now, one little kind of side note, because I don't think it's really that important, but Malvin actually, um, he, he makes a distinction, and he says that when God saves through supernatural means, then it's his saving right hand. So this is divine intervention. This is the miracle. This is, you know, God at the Red Sea. Now, whenever God answers prayer through providential or natural means, you know, it just, this is the way things play out, then that's his left hand. So I, I hmm. you know, how accurate that is, who knows? Is there any theological significance to it? Probably not. Uh, but I did think it was kind of interesting that we're going to go, you know, that this is the way sages and rabbis and everybody thinks about this, this kind of teaching, that you go so far down the rabbit hole that now you're, you're kind of splitting these hairs. Um, mm -hmm. No pun intended. Uh, <laughs> no, and, and, and the, way that, the way that they split some of this stuff up, it does, it does kind of baffle me, some of it. it it's like, I understand, yeah, there's there's a certain type of symbolism to it, but sometimes I, I think some of them get really literal with it, and I, it just just it blows me away. Sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Uh, so, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And so verse 7, uh, some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So now chariots and horses, these are like the ultimate war weapon of the time. If you have chariots and horses in your army, then you have the most advanced weaponry of this time. Now, Deuteronomy 20, verse 1 says, When you go out at war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God is with you who brought you out of the land of Egypt. So, you know, remember, what did Pharaoh come after the children of Israel with? You know, they're on foot. They've got a, maybe a few animals they can ride, but mostly they're on foot. And Pharaoh's coming at them with chariots and horses. They've got an army larger than them. And God destroys Pharaoh with the Red Sea. And so God is the source of Israel's security. And this is, um, this is reaffirmed. Over and over again, in Hosea 1.7, God says that he will not save Judah by swords or bows or horses or horsemen. Um, and what the psalmist is doing, he's saying that, look, God saved you from chariots and horses once upon a time, way back then, that, that time that you're supposed to remember, a time that's supposed to live so vividly in your memory whenever you come to that Passover season, you're supposed to pretend that you're back in that moment before Sinai, that you know, before um, you were released, and you're supposed to imagine what it would be like to be a slave and to, to emerge out of Egypt as a free man. And you're also supposed to remember the terror of having to flee from this, this king and this God-type figure who, who's coming at you with the most deadly of all weapons that is known to mankind at this point in time. So basically what the psalmist is saying, he's saying, what was will be again, and you need to be learning your history so that you can hang on to the faith and the hope and the security that's going to lead you into um, to victory in the future. So because, you know, Israel didn't get out of Egypt because they were too afraid to move. They, they got out of Egypt because they were brave enough to take those steps and to make the move to follow God. And so the psalmist is encouraging the people, as you get ready to engage in battle, this is, this is the mindset that you should have. So anyway, the psalmist reaffirms his, um, his statement in verse 8. He says, they will collapse and fall, but we will rise and stand. So you've got this 
this affirmation. This is how it will be. This is the promise. So verse 9, O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. So the king's victory is the people's victory. The king must be saved if the people are going to be saved. And remember Ahithophel's good counsel. And remember the, the counsel God said was good that was, you know, subverted by Hushai? Mm-hmm. Take out the king. Take out the king. If you take the king out, everything else stops. The battle's over. So here in the psalm, we have echoes of that. We've got to save the king so the people are saved. Now, mm-hmm. and it ends with, may we answer when he calls. So we're, we're right back to where we began. This is how the psalm opens up in, in verse 1, that hope that God will answer. Now, the Mekilta, which the, the Mekilta is, it's, it's a fascinating book. I, I love to read it because there's just lots of little nuggets in there. And again, some things that I agree with, some things that you just kind of laugh about. But it's basically the Jewish rules for how to do proper biblical exegesis. So um, it, it's halakhic midrash for those who are familiar with those uh, tr- um, words. It, it's how to apply the teaching of the Bible. So um, they connect this to Isaiah 41, 14, and this last verse, and it says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So all of the psalm has been this, this kind of dance between humanity and God, where the people are saying, I rely on God. I'm going to express my devotion and loyalty to God. I'm going to present my plans to him. God's going to answer me. He's going to, to guide me in this because he's a good God. He's the one who has mm-hmm. saved us before. And so now we're going to, to anticipate the salvation. Now, we anticipate the salvation because God is good, but God is good to answer our prayers. And so the, the story they tell to illustrate this, and I love the story, okay? This is one of those things that you just, you grab hold of because there, there is, is so good. Why is Jacob called a worm? So just as a tiny worm attacks the mighty cedar, boring holes with nothing more than its mouth, so too Israel is armed with nothing more than the prayers of her mouth. And I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> What a complete and different reading of those worm passages and stories that we have been taught. Because, you know, growing up Southern Baptist, we were taught, oh, we're called a worm because that's, you know, you're just gross and disgusting like a worm. And mm-hmm. to, to read it, no, your mouth, which if you've ever looked at like caterpillars or what have you, I mean, they, they just devour everything and they, they can take out trees. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, well, I mean, last this last summer we planted a bunch of milkweed in our front flower beds uh, to to draw monarchs, mm-hmm. and they they do the caterpillars. It, it's just hilarious. We have the you know they'll they'll grow back in, then butterflies will come and lay the eggs, and then a few weeks later they're just stalks mm-hmm. where they've eaten all the leaves and. And I even saw one caterpillar climb down from one <laughs> that had no leaves on it and go to the next one. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild how, how quickly they can take care of a plant. Well, and when you, when you th- put that in perspective with how we view ourselves, that, that's the kind of power that uh, our prayers would have, that this is the proper use of our words and our language and what comes out of our mouth. And it is to appeal to God in the way that the psalm is talking, where we go, hey, God, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Is this the right thing? And, you know, and I, I go back to conversations that we might have with a parent or, you know, our dad and, and talk about, hey, you know, been thinking about doing this. And, and, you know, what do you think about this? Get your feedback. And it, it, and it really is, like I said, that relationship and balance where both parties are taking responsibility for their part in it. And it's not just, you know, oh, God's going to take care of it all, or I have to do all the work to earn God's attention. It is very reciprocal. And so mm-hmm. I, I love that perspective because I, I know we spent so much time growing up where you didn't have that kind of perspective of God, where God actually cared. 
you know, he was yeah more likely yeah. to well, give you a lightning bolt than, you know, a pat on the back. So Yeah. That, and of course, I, anytime I think of a worm devouring a plant, of course, I always think of uh, Jonah. Right. And, and what's interesting about that, and this is, um, and I know we're kind of, I know this is kind of jumping topics, but I, I, one of the things I kind of find interesting about that is if you think about the, the worm devouring the plant, what, does, what happens then? Jonah's then exposed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and when he's exposed, he starts grumbling. <laughs> And I, I just kind of put that together just now. I'm like, oh, well, that makes a whole lot of sense. That when, <laughs> well, I mean, what do so. we do? In, I mean, yeah, if you bring all these threads together, because when you're when you're praying, you're you're exposing yourself to God. You're 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 exposing yourself to yourself. I mean, it, it, if you really get real and you know don't get caught up in the flowery. Uh, Oh, these and those, oh, his father, you know, whatever. You know, you actually have a real conversation with God. So often, I, I know, at least I do, I find myself saying things that I probably wouldn't have said, uh, that I may not have felt safe enough to say anyplace else. And mm-hmm. I can begin to, to examine my own heart in that moment and do so in a way that I'm not going to do if I'm talking to a friend or, you know, I, you know just even talking to my husband. But there is that exposure is a good thing because, uh, you know, not to get too cliche, but you're only as sick as your secrets. Right. You know, it's a cliche because it is true. So anyway, but we can move back to, at this point, 2 Samuel 18, the part you prepared for. The the part I I am familiar with. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to be... Picking up in verse 6, David's organized his armies. Uh, Everybody's in thirds. We're under Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. And his generals have have recommended that he not join them in battle. He stood at the gate. He's seen them off. Um, You know, if we follow tradition, the psalm that we just looked at is being sung over the armies as they go out into this battle. And he had commanded his generals to deal gently with the young man, specifically Absalom. And all the people heard. And that's the important point, because we, we need to know that later on in the story. So verse 6. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. Okay. Mm-hmm. Immediately we have a problem. <laughs> and so... Uh, we can't, you know, we've been a little bit in Samuel without too much of a problem, but now we've got a problem because previously we were told that uh, the armies were on the east side of the Jordan. That was in chapter 17, verse 24, and Ephraim's territory is on the west side of the Jordan. Mm-hmm. Now, Zamora um, is actually, it says this is actually a reference not to forest of Ephraim, but the forest of Gilead. And the reason why he connects it with Gilead, he cites Jeremiah 22.6, where God is talking about the king of Judah. And uh, God says, you are like Gilead to me, like this um, summit of Lebanon. Surely I will make you desert, uh, a des- sorry, a deserted and an uninhabited city. I will prepare destroyers against you, each with his weapons, and they will cut down your choicest cedars and cast them in the fire. So Gilead does seem to be known as being a place where a forest is. Now, Rashi attempts to make a little bit more um, nuanced solution that allows us to stay a little closer to the idea of this being property that belongs to Ephraim. And he explains that Ephraim would bring their animals across the river to go graze, and this was part of the original provision for them when Joshua made the allotments to the tribes. Mm-hmm. I think the answer is found in the book of Joshua itself, actually. Uh, and so I'm going to—this is what I think, so if I'm wrong, you know, as usual, call me on it. So in Joshua 16, Joshua lays out the boundaries for Ephraim and Manasseh. You know, those are the two sons of Joseph. They, they both got their own allotments within the promised land instead of Joseph getting a single allotment. In Joshua 17, Ephraim and Manasseh come to Joshua and say, look, this is too small. This is not going to work. And Joshua tells them, if you are a numerous people, 
Go up by yourselves to the forest and clear ground for yourself in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim, since the hill country of Ephraim is too narrow for you. Okay, so in Joshua 12, 4 and 13, 12, we're told that Gilead is the home of the tribes of the Rephaim. And the tribes of the Rephaim live in a land uh, this, that encompasses both the home of, or Gilead encompasses, the home of the king of Og and Goliath. So we know that mm. this is the proper location. In okay. Judges 12, so we've moved out of Joshua, now we're in Judges 12. We learn that Jephthah, which remember, he was the guy who made the stupid vow to sacrifice to God the first thing that came out to greet him when he came home from battle, and it turned out to be his daughter. Um, anyway, Jephthah the Gileadite and all the men of Gilead fought with the tribe of Ephraim. And so in verse 5 of chapter 12, we're told that they captured the fords of the Jordan. So... Yeah. It seems that what happened, and like I said, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, that Ephraim and Manasseh did what Joshua told them to do. They went across the river, they went to Gilead, which was the home of the Rephaim, exactly where Joshua told them to go, and they had established this as part of their territory. Then Jephthah, one of the inhabitants who was not an Ephraimite, but a Gileadite, he actually fights the Ephraimites back and gets them in, back into the original territory. And the forest just retained the name of the forest of Ephraim. So this would serve two, for, uh, two purposes. Number one, it would remind the Ephraimites, don't mess with us. We, you once had this. We have it now. Number two, um, it also distinguished that as a particular place within the overall territory of Gilead. So that's what I think is going on. And I know we kind of had to go around Katie's barn to get there, but it's. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I see, you know, if you follow the, the progression, I think it makes sense more so than, oh, well, it's just the wrong word or, oh, you know, this is just a provision that, that was in the Torah that we, we didn't talk about before. So by choosing this, um, this battlefield, basically David is taking advantage of everything that his generals know. Remember, his generals were with him when he was hiding in the hill country from Saul. Uh, they're mm-hmm. used to fighting in the hills and in the forest. And by doing this, he's basically taking away all of the advantage that um, Absalom's larger army gives him. And so he, he's being very smart because if you've got, I, we've known this, we have seen this over and over in history. And matter of fact, this is one of the things that happened when uh, the British settlers and the armies first came over to the United States. The Native Americans were winning wars. Why? Because they took advantage of the geography. They took advantage mm-hmm of hiding behind trees. They, they fought in a completely different way than an organized army. Absalom. And I, yeah. and I gotta say, the way Europeans used to do, you, to do warfare. Stupid. Especially, <laughs> especially when guns came along, was not a great idea. <laughs> Everyone line up in plain sight and shoot at each other. Does not seem like a good way to do things. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's totally not what our ta- what we're, what we're talking about, but I just need to put that out there because every time I think about it, it drives me a little insane. <laughs> no, I get it. And, but I mean, this is basically what David's doing. He, he's, he's using guerrilla warfare type tactics to, to win this battle. And, you know, Absalom, what you've got to remember about him, he grew up in a different time. He grew up in a whole different set of circumstances where, you know, things are more civilized now. We can, mm-hmm. you know, there, there armies march in rows or, you know, I'm not sure about all, you know, about being that specific, but there is something about people who have to, to bootstrap their way through surviving conflict. People who, who learn to fight, you know, using rocks and sticks versus people who have guns or even a sword. And so David was very familiar. Remember when he started his army, he was the only guy with a sword. And right. he was the one who, who 
took Joab under his wing and Abishai. Now, we, you know, Ittai the Gittite doesn't join him till later, but at least Abishai and Joab were with him through all this time and they had been trained by the best. So I think we forget about, you know, King David is still the guy on the run from Saul. That it's the same person. And so uh, he still has all of that knowledge that he gained during that time at his disposal. And so did Joab and Abishai. So um, verse 7, And the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the loss was great on that day, 20,000 men. Now, okay, this got me excited. Uh, Matter of fact, I even had to call and talk to you on the phone about it because it was just, notice the difference here. The men of Israel are defeated by the servants of David. Now, when we think about who they're talking about, the servants of David are Joab, who joined him willingly, who's been by his side in and out of, you know, the harshest situations like we were just talking about. Joab, who had just as many reasons to join Absalom as he did, with staying, did for staying with David. You know, if you look at family ties and connections, and maybe even closer because Joab and Absalom would have been cousins. Abishai, same thing, because Joab and Abishai are, are brothers. Ittai the Gittite, who, who joins David, even when David says, no, go back. It's safer for you. It's better for you if you don't come with me. But decides to stay with David anyway. These are not what we think of when we think of servants. We, when we think of servants today, we think of people who are, you know, kind of mousy, kind of very meek and mild and you know, easy to boss around. This is not the people that are servants of David. The servants of David argue back. The servants of David push him to get him to do things that they think are right. The servants of David are not coerced. They're not manipulated. They're not bought off. They are there simply because they're loyal. And we got to think about who David is. David's the Messiah. He's the anointed king of Israel. And, and this is exciting to me because this is telling us in very plain, you know, uh, a very approachable and understandable way, the servants of the Messiah are more powerful than the men of the earth. That's mm-hmm. huge. That's huge. And I think we need, to, we need to hear that, that the servants of the Messiah, they're the same people called the mighty men. They're, they're, the, they're the most feared. They're, they're, they're the most respected of their time. So, why are we not holding this up as, as a way to illustrate what the servants of the Messiah looks like? You know, it's not meek and ma- docile and mild. And as far as, you know, what we think of as meek, we aren't going to go into what, you know, all the definitions and possibilities. We aren't talking about mousy people, okay? We aren't talking about timid people. We're talking about people who are willing to fight for the right things, and, and aren't somebody who's coward, and we aren't coerced, and we aren't bought off, and we aren't, you know, forced to serve him. We join him because we believe he is the rightful king. And, and that's such a different message than what is being taught so many times. And I, I, I hate the fact that we've turned this idea of being a servant of God into something where God literally conquers you in order to make you uh, be a part of his family, to join his army. That's, that's not how it works. That's how Absalom worked. So, you know, when you compare and contrast, we have this wonderful imagery that could help us understand at a better level than what we might have encountered in a lot of today's teachings and ideas about what it means to be a servant of God. And so... How much better to be a mighty man uh, or a mighty woman, because there's mighty women in the Bible too, and mm-hmm. then it is to be you know somebody that has no value, no worth, and no backbone of their own. And especially when we're coming off that Psalms 20, where we have, like we said, that very balanced relationship where both parties are bringing something to the table and discussing where do we go from here? And so I, I, I love this picture, and I love the, the 
the new perspective it gives because we need to be talking about this. And I think so often, you know, there's this idea that Christians are either, you know, too militant. There, there is that, and I, I don't want to discount that because there are some really... Mm-hmm. But then there's the other side where Christians are just, you, know, you become a doormat. And you become a doormat to God yeah. and society. So... Well, and what's... And- the two militant side is is oftentimes they start conflating, uh, you know, various things, various cultural norms, uh, for scriptural mandates, and that's when you start running into trouble. Yeah, yeah, and you know, and, and this is the reason why we need to be in the Word, and we need to be looking at what the Bible actually says, and you know, really picking through and trying to figure out what has society condi- conditioned us to think is correct. What has culture dictated to us that we haven't been allowed to question? Um, basically, I'm in the mind, if you're not allowed to question something, then you need to get away from whoever's telling you you shouldn't question. Um, you know, and I, I go back to uh, when we talk about God being the father and how often um, our, our biological fathers kind of serve as a template. Our dad liked us to ask questions. He liked to ask us questions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, th- there's some, there's a beauty and a love and respect that's communicated in that kind of give and take. And then I go back to the book of Job and one of the things I really love about the book of Job, it wasn't because he was patient. It wasn't because he was just this long suffering guy that that's a misnomer that society has taught us. No, the guy whines, moans, and complains throughout the whole book. He asks all these questions of God and what does God do? God shows up. And, and you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I love that because I can do that. I can whine to God. I can moan and complain to God. I, I can ask God a million questions. And, you know, and I, I love it when he does show up. And he does show up. Maybe, you know, not in the dramatic way that he did for Job, but there, there are moments when I know without a shadow of a doubt that God has shown up and he's been active in my life. And sometimes I think it's because I keep pushing him and I keep, you know, not pushing him as in I'm forcing him to do something, but I'm not turning loose of the relationship. And I keep pushing into the relationship and saying, how, how does this work? What, what do I do to live a life that's, that's more faithful, that's more representative of who you've called me to be? And, you know, I'm not there yet. I'm not saying that, that, I, I've got it right. But the good news is by, by keeping asking the questions, maybe I can get closer. And I think mm-hmm. that's encouraging. And I think when we stop asking questions or told that we have to stop uh, asking questions, that's someone trying to take away our tools because that's how you get to know things. That's how you learn. And that's how you learn about other people. Mm-hmm. And that's what the Psalm, you know, that we just went over, you know, God, you know, fulfill my plans. You know, why are, why are we asking that? Because we brought our plans to him and we said, hey, this is what's going on. What, what do you think? And so anyway, that's probably a good place for us to, to pause. And we will, okay. we will get back to Second um, Samuel 18 next week. Yeah, well, sounds like a good... Uh, you know, I'm excited. There's some when we get into the next section. That's where I really had some questions. Um, yeah, this is all kind of set up. About, <laughs> yeah, and particularly the next verse, um, I had some questions about that. So, well, um, and that's the reason why we stopped here. <laughs> yeah, I figured you had quite a few. Uh, I'm sh- I'm sure there's some fun stuff about the next verse, and I, I will we'll start maybe with some of my questions next week. We'll see. Um, but in the meantime, if you want to be part of the conversation, if you have questions about any of this stuff, um, let us know, hit us up on Raven Creek SC on all the social media or ravencreeksc.com where you can find our show notes. You can find other shows and you can find the newly added content by, um, Doug Overmeyer, Doug Overmeyer. (laughs) Yes. I blanked on his last name. I, I know too many Dougs. I'm like going through my catalog. It's like Doug. Uh, which one is it? We're, yeah, it, we're just so excited <laughs> that he he's joined us. Um, so yeah, that we're going to talk it up to that. It's not that you know forgot his name. You, you're just excited, yeah. Okay. Well, well, that that's fair. <laughs> but um, no, what uh, 
what I was actually going to say is, um, if you're interested, go check it out. He's moved a lot of the CRC content over uh, to the Raven Creek mm-hmm. Social Club. Um, and normally, whenever we have someone join up, they generally we just you know they get a show page added, and that's uh, a lot of what we've got going on. This time, we actually have added a link to the nav- navigation that has a lot of the CRC mm-hmm. resources. Um, so, if you listened to the most recent episode of the Commentarians with Emily over on uh, with uh, with Joe, uh, listen to the Commentarians. She talks about things or, uh, where people see things uh, in mm-hmm. the spiritual realm. If you have questions about that. Go hit up the website. If up at the top, you will find a link to Seer Resources. Um, a lot of research that Doug has put into that. Um, go check it out. I'm really thrilled to to have that on there and and be able to to give some stuff back more than just giving away information <laughs> through podcast. We're putting resources out there that people can tangibly. I mean, I guess I mean there is also a link to Doug's book uh, yes. as well. Um, Peace in your house is that <laughs> it. And, yeah, and I do, I do want to point out too, Doug, I, I don't recommend people who deal with this side of Christianity very often because they tend to be off kilter, or out of balance. Doug is somebody that I trust. And I think that his work is very balanced and it's well-researched and he's not going for sensationalism. Uh, so even if you're just curious about this and this isn't part of your experience, you just want to know more, he is a good, good resource. And we're so glad to have his resources be a part of Raven Creek. So didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just, no, no, that's, yeah, that's a good thing to put out there because you're right. There are some people who, who go way off into, uh, non, non-scriptural teachings, Mm -hmm. shall we say? Mm -hmm. Um, Doug is very, uh, grounded in the word, um, in, Mm -hmm. in what he teaches and what he explains. So, Again, super thrilled to have him on the the crew with us, and uh, go check out his stuff, especially if you have questions about uh, the spiritual world, seeing into it, things like that. Um, This is not a how-to see into the spiritual world manual. (laughs) It is um, a, if you are gifted with the ability to see things. How do you deal with it? (laughs) How do you deal with it? How do you use it for the kingdom of God? Exactly. Um, And that's... and. For anyone who hasn't picked up on it here, that's that's what Raven Creek's all about, is is Christ and his kingdom uh, when it comes down to it at the end of the day. There you go. So, um, yeah, we can just close it all down with that statement. <laughs> there we go. Um, <laughs> so, until then, well, everyone, we'll, we'll see you on the internet. Have a good week. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.